Hey, Zern listeners, this is chapter three in my deep dive on schizoid personality disorder. I thought I would start off by providing a composite case example of what some people would call a secret schizoid. So let's get into it. My name is Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor and a podcaster and a YouTuber, and I suppose a little bit of an author. So uh, as a caveat to this case example, I should tell you that this is a long one, so settle in. And this is also just one case. Every case of schizoid is different. But this is a pretty good case example of someone with schizoid and what we might call secret schizoid or covert schizoid. And it also provides a lot of the nuances. This case example provides a lot of the nuances of schizoid. So it it can be very elucidative of the disorder. So a woman called me and she told me she was suffering from severe anxiety recently. And that's what she wanted to work on. So I accepted her as a client. She comes to my office. I conducted a quick assessment, and it just looked like she had a recent panic attack of some sort. She told me that her name was Nicole, that she is 30 years old, she is married with no children, and she works at Microsoft as a manager. She initially just wanted a few sessions to work on her anxiety that cropped up recently. She told me that she never really suffered from anxiety before, and she had an event recently that was confusing and distressing and problematic, and she wanted to fix that and get back to her life. But I quickly realized that she wasn't just suffering from a simple case of acute anxiety recently. For example, she offhandedly told me that she attempted suicide five years prior. She told me this in a really matter-of-fact way, as if it was no big deal, which I didn't know what to make of at first, but later I would conceptualize it as something that I'll get to later. And she didn't have a good explanation for why she attempted suicide. Normally, people will say something like, I was going through a really bad time, or sometimes I just wonder what's the point in living, you know, just something like that. But she just said something like, I don't know, I guess I was upset or something. So I didn't know what to make of that at first because I just met her. Also, she told me that she has always wondered if therapy could help her with her personality. Again, in a very matter-of-fact way, she told me that she feels like a robot, like she's just going through the motions. But she also said that she's jealous of other people, how they can have connections with other people and how they don't seem to feel like robots to themselves. So she wondered if she uh, uh, might need help with that. She, for her whole life, she's been wondering if there might be something different about her that she should be talking with someone about. But she was always ambivalent about going to therapy, but this anxiety attack prompted her, and so she brought this up. But again, she reported this in a fairly matter-of-fact way. She didn't have any emotion about it. There wasn't any sort of distress or discomfort. It was like she was telling me about a movie that she had watched the night before, this you know, dispassionate description. But again, I, I didn't know what to make of it because uh, most of the time when I'm assessing, I'm just absorbing a lot of information and I uh, uh, refrain from drawing any conclusions because uh, I just don't know enough information and I don't want to jump to conclusions. So this prompted me, you know, her telling me these things, 
it prompted me to ask about other aspects of her life, both her external world, like what's going on in her relationships and whatnot, but also I asked her questions about her internal world, her subjective experiences, like her emotions. But I quickly detected that she was not comfortable with these questions. I didn't know what was the, you know, what it was about the questions, particularly since she had opened the door by talking about a couple things that would seemingly invite me to ask questions. But she didn't seem to react well to that. Again, I didn't know what to make of that. I didn't. I didn't know if I was just asking the wrong questions or it was too early. Later, I would learn this was kind of a pattern. For example, let's say that you know, session five, she's telling me about a story about work, and that prompts me to ask her how she was feeling as she told me the story. This is something that I often ask clients for various reasons, you know, like she's saying, oh, I was at work, and my boss was being a jerk face, and I don't know, I just feel like sometimes uh, maybe I should quit. And as the client is telling me these kinds of things, it might be helpful to focus on the relationship between me and the client, because the client is telling me things and reporting things, and you know I'm, I'm interested in her subjective experience. I'm interested in her evaluation of her boss and the ongoing relationship and what this has to do maybe with her relational traumas and patterns and maybe fairness. Maybe there's some sort of oppression going on. I don't know. But I'm also the sort of therapist who focuses on the here and now in the relationship. If we just look at it in a different angle, I'm not hearing a story so much as the client is asking me emotionally for something in this moment by telling me a particular version of the story in a particular way. And I'm listening in a particular way. And I want that sometimes to be highlighted explicitly in the, in the session. And so I might ask the client, so as you're telling me the story and I'm listening and I'm, uh, you know, I say, let's say that I, as a therapist, even tell the client, like, uh, and this isn't unusual for me to say, I might say something like, wow, your boss sounds like a real piece of work. I, um, I'm upset on your behalf, that kind of thing. And I might ask the client later, how does it feel to have me hear you and react in the way that I did? Is it bothersome to you? Do you receive it well? Um, how do you absorb my reaction? So when I would ask that kind of question, she, my, you know, Nicole, the client, would stop in her tracks and not really answer the question. She seemed almost like I was shaming her in a way, which I definitely wasn't doing. And she would cast her eyes downward and be silent for several minutes. And this is when I first started wondering if there was a personality disorder because it had the vibe of that. And I, I, you know, I could go into why I would have a vibe of that, but a part of it is just how it made me feel because it's a very normal question. It's a bit of a, a, a vulnerable or risky question to ask a client. And I don't ask it just willy-nilly, but it, it's you know fairly low intensity. At the very least, if a client wanted to get out f- from having to go deeper, they could ask it, they could answer in a pretty easy way that could just glance over my question. And that'll happen sometimes, which is fine. But uh, what happened to her was something more uh, severe and seemingly was, uh, you know, illuminating some sort of distortion that she had about the question or me or other people or herself or something. There seemed to be some kind of shame or shutdown or fear, danger. I didn't know what it was yet. 
So I had to uh, adjust my approach to her pretty severely, which is normal for any client, but particularly people with personality disorders. And I had to very, uh, um, I had to be very gentle and very slow when I asked questions. I would ask questions in a way that would give her the freedom to remain reserved and on the surface, because it seemed that vulnerability, anything having to do with even remotely close to talking about her emotional inner experience was uh, off limits or dangerous or something. And I also had to really believe that that was okay with me. I, I couldn't just act like I was okay with not talking about those things. I had to really give off the vibe to her that I was completely okay with her not telling me about her inner life. So a lot of our conversations folks focused on what was going on around her and maybe she might volunteer things to me about her inner life, but I wasn't allowed, so to speak, to ask questions about her inner life because that, that seemed to be too much for her. But over time, with this approach of being very gentle and slow and allowing her the uh, the power to be able to volunteer things rather than me asking things, um, over time, she did slowly open up more and be more receptive to me answering questions. So uh, uh, this went on for many, many months. And over the course of therapy, she eventually told me the following information. So that, you know, the next uh, bit of this case is a conglomeration of a lot of information that I learned over time. Okay. So her relationship with her husband is good. She's married. She has a good relationship. They both work a lot, They bo- but they both work in tech. They only see each other on Sundays, and they spend their time hiking, doing yard work, doing chores, watching movies, and they're both really into classic movies, and they also both play a lot of video games, not together video games, but they do play video games in the same room, like they have their computers in the same room. And that's actually how they met. They met while playing World of Warcraft. They also smoke weed on most nights, but sometimes her husband isn't into smoking. So on those nights, she doesn't usually smoke weed. Now, she eventually revealed to me that her and her husband do fight sometimes. That wasn't revealed to me early on. Earlier on, It took me a while to figure out what was going on between the two of them because I couldn't ask questions. I couldn't ask all the questions that I had. But I eventually had enough information to conceptualize that their conflict was as following, that he would feel distance from her between the two of them, and he would try to connect with her by talking to her or interacting with her or trying to have sex with her or something. And she would get prickly somehow, like she might shut down or change the subject or get annoyed with him. And then he would get hurt and he would explode with anger, not abusive anger, but he would get really frustrated, visibly emotional. Now, if she had the energy, then she would change her tune and she would be really nice to him. She would act like she understood his feelings, even though she didn't understand his feelings really at all. She would tell me that, that she didn't understand his feelings and, for that matter, anyone's feelings. 
and she would find that if she acted this way, then this would calm him down. But sometimes when she didn't have the energy to be nice to him, she would leave the house and maybe even stay at a hotel. Not because she felt unsafe, she would tell me, but she would stay at a hotel or leave the house because she thought he was being ridiculous and illogical and there wasn't any uh, possible avenue that was rational towards uh, resolving the issue. And by leaving, she knew that this might result in divorce, but she was okay with that. She would tell me that sometimes he would threaten her and say, if you don't talk with me about this sort of thing, or if you stay at a hotel, then I don't want to ever talk to you or see you again, if you're going to leave me all the time. And she would tell me that she felt somewhat guilty that uh, she didn't really care about the marriage very much. And she thought, well, if he divorces me, then he divorces me, which would prompt me to ask her a lot of questions about whether or not she truly actually wanted to be in the relationship because it sounded like she wasn't very invested in it. But over time, she would tell me that in a way, she was very invested in the relationship, but she felt like she didn't really have the capacity to ever care about anything, let alone any sort of marriage. And so um, on her scale, she very much cared about the marriage, which on anyone else's scale, wasn't actually caring about the marriage that much, if that makes any sense. So she told me that she suspected that he was in the right during some of these fights, because most people want to talk about their feelings and other stuff. But she hates that sort of thing. She's always wondered if there was something wrong with her in this way. She told me that they also fight about money, she said that her husband worries all the time about money in the future. They recently bought a house that was probably too expensive, and now they have a hard time paying the mortgage every month. So her husband is always worrying about it, but she doesn't understand why he worries. She doesn't understand why anyone worries, really, because there's no point in worrying about it. She says it's illogical to worry. It'll either work out or they'll be evicted, whatever, that's it. So why worry? And when he worries, he wants to talk about it, but she gets bored talking about it, and then he gets angry, which leads to conflict. She also told me that they would fight about sex. He wants to have sex more often than she does, and she said that it's gotten to the point where she avoids kissing him or cuddling with him because that will only make him horny and make him want to have sex. So after some exploration in therapy with me, she eventually told me that she does like sex, but she just doesn't like having sex with other people, or she doesn't like the bother of having sex with other people. Uh, she would tell me that she liked to look at porn and masturbate and whatnot, but she didn't, you know, sometimes when she was horny and interested and had a libido episode, if you will, that she would masturbate, even though she knew that her husband would very much like to share that with her. But she would say that having sex with him was an emotional chore because she would have to tend to him and concern herself with how he felt about things. And she just didn't want to bother. It was just easier just to have sex with herself. Now, she would say that she would ultimately rather have sex with him 
but she wanted it in a particularly limited way that she couldn't guarantee with him. And she would tell me that she never had a, a sexual partner that was the sort that she wanted. She she wanted it to be very by the book or very, I don't know, um, lack of complications, if you will. So she, she would tell me that. She would tell me that she had friends. She met most of her friends while playing World of Warcraft and other online games, but mainly World of Warcraft. Some of her closest friends uh, that she met on World of Warcraft, she had actually never met with them in person. She had only interacted with them online and over video chat, but they were very much a part of each other's lives. It wasn't uh, a shallow relationship. They might check in every day or throughout the day, and she was much closer to these people than maybe anyone else in her life. But from my estimation, the relationship still didn't seem extremely close because 99.9% of what they would talk about would be World of Warcraft or other games, which, you know, isn't a bad thing, but it if that's all you interact about, then it limits the depth and the connection and the bonding. But she was totally fine with that, seemingly. Um, but although she was friendly to her friends, she would tell me that she wasn't really a friend to any of them, meaning that she acts nice and she likes having friends, but on the inside, she definitely keeps her distance. She is wary of sharing things with other people. And over the years, she's learned how to retain friendships in such a way that doesn't bother either party. She just keeps her distance from them while at the same time not provoking any sort of hurt or anger in the other person. And she also finds people that are okay with her style of friendship, which is to be fairly activity-oriented and non-emotional, non, not really very supportive of each other, and, and a relationship that doesn't involve knowing what's going on in each other's lives, really. you know, She would tell me that some of her closest friends online uh, barely know anything about her job or her marriage or her life or her history, um, but they know a, a shit ton about their World of Warcraft activity, you know, minute details. She also found that texting is the best way to communicate with her friends and maybe even her husband. A few years ago, she realized that she would rather text with her friends and maybe her husband than actually talking with them over chat or other kinds of things over the phone. Texting to her was much more convenient, but it was also easier to avoid uncomfortable conversations. You know, texts tend to be more limited or light or on the surface, um, and she uh, very much preferred that and, and would, would feel compelled to reach out to her friends over text. It wasn't that she was just complying with their texts. She she would actively initiate things. She's very good, or at least good enough, with these casual relationships, like going to a movie or going to a party um, in person with people that she knew in, in her real life. But she avoids any social activity that could involve deeper conversations or emotions, like one-on-one -on -one get together She would tell me that if she had a friend that wanted to meet up over coffee or wanted to talk about 
a, a divorce that her friend was going through, then Nicole would figure out some way to get out of it. Either she would say that she was busy because she did work a lot or that her husband wanted to do something. Or in a pinch, she would tell me that she would just not show. Or, you know, that she if she couldn't get out of meeting up with someone, like she told me about how there was a funeral, a memorial of um, one of her friend's uh, parents, I believe. And her friend said, hey, you know, I'd really like you to be there. And Nicole didn't really know what that meant, but she didn't want to risk it. She didn't want to go to the funeral memorial and have to uh, hear or express her own emotions. And she worried that if she went to the memorial that it would come across to other people that she didn't care or that she wasn't interested in the death and that she was confused by everyone's crying. And, and she just knew it was very uncomfortable for her. And so uh, she, you know, she, she couldn't say, Oh, I'm busy that day. Cause you know, there's enough time in advance to be there. And at the last minute, she just didn't show and planned on saying that she was sick. Okay, so I'm going to take a break, and when I get back, I'll continue to describe this case example. All right, we're back from the break. She also avoids getting close to people, distressingly close to people, by doing the following things. She tries to give the impression that she's the fun friend, someone who can laugh and have a good time, and she's really good at that, but she wants to give the impression that She's not particularly interested in deep, in deep emotions, and she's well known for that in her friend group. And she's quite proud of the fact that she can have friends that don't suspect anything is wrong with her. She's very concerned about making sure that no one really knows what's going on with her. And she, she wasn't ashamed of herself, but she did think of herself as different, and she learned when she was very young that if she just acted normally, she would alienate other people. So she cultivated this persona when she was younger of being the light, funny, fun one who likes to maybe have a few drinks, get high, uh, maybe go dancing. But uh, when it came to deep emotions, she would have this way of just um, avoiding it. But people didn't think of she didn't suspect that people thought of her as avoiding emotions. They th- would, uh, you know, she thought that her friends saw her as just someone that was just very, very happy and didn't have any reason to have deep or difficult emotions or something like that. Now, she would also tell me that in some cases, she would have to end a friendship because the friend would just keep trying to engage. Occasionally, she would have a friend that just didn't take the hint and would just continually initiate conversations about emotions and, you know, ask questions, even though she was doing all the things to avoid that. And at some point, she would just have to, you know, cut things off with those people. And Nicole would report to me that she lost a few friends who had been hurt by her style. But she felt like she had a good group of friends currently that understood her and allowed her to be the way that she was. Now, going into her history, her parents emigrated from Russia before she was born, and then she was born in Seattle. 
Her parents, according to her, fought all the time, and she would tell me that they still do fight all the time. They're still together, living together, her parents. She would tell me that her father drinks throughout the day and probably had been drinking every day since before she was born, but he hides all the alcohol from the family because the mother will get on his case about drinking. You know, his his wife gets on his case about drinking. For example, one time she found a mountain of empty vodka bottles in a dark corner of the garage, like just, you know, dozens, maybe hundreds of, of empty plastic vodka bottles. She told me that her mother nags her, quote unquote, nags her all the time. The mother criticizes Nicole for being overweight, for not being as pretty as her cousins, for being too quiet, for not being as successful as her older brother, and so on. Nicole told me that half the reason why she got married and bought a house is because her mother wouldn't stop nagging her about it. She also, Nicole also enjoys group activities like taking a pottery class or uh, joining a workout group of some kind. She genuinely enjoys being with other people, but she doesn't want to be the center of attention. She does everything she can to make sure that she blends in, like not wearing bright colors and not talking much, if at all. But she hates one-on-one classes, like a personal trainer. For example, one time she was the only one who arrived at a yoga class. Normally, there would be eight people. And when she arrived, she figured other students would arrive soon, so she didn't leave right away. But after 15 minutes, she realized that she was going to be the only one, the only student. And of course, the yoga instructor wanted to talk with her and work with her one-on-one, and she was extremely uncomfortable with that. She endured that class meeting, but afterwards, she canceled her membership and never went back. She said it it was um, just, she hates situations like that. Um, She was almost angry at the yoga instructor for not canceling the class. Nicole's dream is to save up enough money so she can retire and live somewhere in the North Cascades, which is this fairly remote area in Washington. She knows someone at work who did that, who uh, uh, you know retired from Microsoft and got a house very in, at a very remote area of a of a nice, beautiful area of Washington. And Nicole tells me tells me that she loves hiking by herself often but she also hikes with her husband and she loves it in the North Cascades in Washington state because it's very quiet and serene. She loves the nature and the animals. Now let's get into what she would tell me about her relationships at work. She learned the hard way that she needs to be pleasant at work. Um, Going back to when she graduated from college and she started her first real job, as she put it, After a few months, her boss fired her, not because she wasn't doing a good job. In fact, her boss said she was very good at her job. Uh, No, she was fired instead because she made everyone around her feel uncomfortable because she never talked to anyone. She told me that she hates small talk and she doesn't understand it. She thinks it's really ridiculous. She doesn't understand why anyone would want to have small talk. She doesn't understand why anyone would want to have any sort of conversation with a coworker at all, really, because she would say that we're here to work. That's it. Why would you want to chit chat? In fact, she was very judgmental and resentful of how much chit chat there was because she would work from the time she arrived at the office until she left, while everyone else seemingly was chit-chatting all the time. She feels like 
there is zero benefit from having a conversation with a coworker at all because she would say that she gains nothing. And uh, not only does she not gain anything from these chit-chat conversations, but she also risks a lot. She risks setting up a precedent that she'll be open to that sort of thing in the future. She risks revealing things that she doesn't want revealed about her. She risks someone using her personal information against her. She risks having to lie about things, not because she wants to lie, but she feels compelled sometimes to lie because she's being forced to answer questions and she would rather lie than reveal personal information about her. So these chit-chat conversations, uh, she risks a lot and gains nothing, she would tell me. But because she needed to work, she learned after being fired that she had to make other people feel comfortable by engaging in a little bit of small talk and short conversations. And so she started planning out her small talk before going to work, like on Sunday night, she would rehearse how to answer the question, so what did you do this weekend? Anything fun? Sometimes she would plan to lie about things because she didn't feel comfortable telling people about her private life. Like um, she would tell me, you know, what gives people the, what, what gives my coworkers the right to know this stuff about me? I mean, why do they believe they have the entitlement to know my life? I mean, it's so aggravating that people would be invasive about my life. What's it to you what I did on the weekend, she would say. So sometimes she would just lie. She felt justified in lying because she felt like they were being unreasonable, so it was okay for her to lie back. So sometimes she would even plan lies that she would say. Like if someone asked what she did on the weekend, she would lie and say something like, oh, I just did some spring cleaning, or oh, my husband and I organized our garage. Um, you know, those things were usually boring enough so that the coworker wouldn't ask any sort of follow-up questions. And, it, you know, it was conceivably true because, you know, there's no real record of that. You know, like she couldn't say, I went to Hawaii, then there, that would prompt more questions and she might get caught in the lie. So she had certain ways of, of responding and she would do it in a very pleasant, believable way. And she found that if she said those things, there wouldn't be any follow-up questions and then she could go back to work. And by the way, when I learned about this lying that she would do to other people, I wondered if she had lied to me because I would ask her way more personal questions. So I, uh, over a number of sessions, we talked about whether or not she might lie. But of course, the question to her from me about whether or not she's lying to me is a very personal question. So a bit of a catch-22 that I thought of. And, uh, you know, I wasn't really sure if she was always being truthful to me. But I think over time, the gist of the truth was being told to me. Also, over time, she realized that if she plays along, people are much more likely to be cooperative with her, which makes it easier for her to do her job. So she told me about what uh, happened that led to her seeking therapy in the first place. Eventually, she tells me the full story. It took me a while to get, like, the the subjective experience. You know, the first time she told me the following story, it was a bit confusing because it didn't have any emotional content. But once I got the emotional content, then I had a much better understanding about what happened. So it was a particularly distressing situation for her. So she's at work in a small group meeting, 
And one of her coworkers, someone she's been working with for a few years, the coworker, let's call him Jim. Jim has been working in the office for many years, and he is known for being one of the nicest people in the office. He always brings flowers to the office from his garden. He always has a big smile, and he is very kind to everyone, and he's well known for that. Nicole actually liked him a lot because he made her feel safe because of how nice he was. But she was also somewhat uncomfortable around him because he would ask really personal questions of other people, like, how was your weekend? And he would ask, how are you feeling? And he would really mean it. He wouldn't just be saying, like, how are you doing the way that everyone does? He, he would mean, like, how are you actually doing? And when he would ask stuff like that, he would be um, really focused on people. So that did not make her feel comfortable. And people would often open up to him, Nicole would observe. And since Nicole hates that sort of thing, she avoided him, even though she mostly liked him. But she also eventually revealed to me that she strongly suspected that Jim's niceness was all just some sort of ruse. Like, behind the smile and all the niceties was someone who just wanted to make other people more vulnerable so he could use that vulnerability against those people. Or maybe he was some sort of secret pervert or something. Why would he want to know all this information about people? Why was he being so nice? Why was he getting so much information from people? And incidentally, from my perspective, I had never actually met Jim, of course, but the way that Nicole talked about him, I suspected that if I met him over time, I would think that he was genuine. But for whatever reason, Nicole interpreted his niceness and his his uh, you know specialness you know because he was especially nice and uh, safe and elucidative and uh, for her for Nicole there was a suspicion of of ill intent from him but I could never know if there wasn't or or there was ill intent from Jim well so in one. One day, there's a small group meeting at work, and Nicole always arrived late to these sorts of things because she knew that if she arrived early or even on time to meetings, then people would want to chit-chat. So she would always time her arrival in meetings to be as as close to when the actual meeting begins after the chit-chat, but not too late so that she is being a bad employee. And Jim was at this meeting. And he sat next to Nicole. There was a new manager who liked to have icebreakers, which, by the way, Nicole hated. She just thought, what's the point in an icebreaker? So Jim and Nicole are sitting next to each other, and the new manager had the two of them do the icebreaker together. So Nicole and Jim are paired up. And the task was to ask questions of each other. So Jim started asking questions, and Nicole immediately started to have discomfort, and uh, she had what I might call uh, some sort of a spike in anxiety. It wasn't really a panic attack so much as a severe anxiety reaction. She started to sweat. She was confused. Now, of course, I would ask her what it is about him that triggers her, and she would again say that she became more and more convinced that he was up to no good, that he was trying to hurt her, that he was um, 
really maybe even evil, some sort of psychopath. And when I asked her what led her to think that, there wasn't anything convincing. It was just seemingly, again, I wasn't there, but the way she described her interaction with Jim, it just seemed like she was paired up with a particularly, uh, um, you know, might some people validly describe Jim as being invasive or having bad boundaries at work? Maybe, but it didn't seem pathological and there was no evidence that it was nefarious of any kind. But, But in her body, Nicole's body, she seemingly had a trauma trigger. Some kind of invasiveness was uh, being recalled. Some some past trauma in which she was being invaded, right? So she had an anxiety reaction. She started sweating. sweating. She became confused, fight or flight, adrenaline. And she didn't know what to say to his questions. She noticed that he was looking at her funny because she wasn't responding. And she was very good at coming across like she wasn't anxious, but she was having a lot of anxiety on the inside. So what she did, she thinks she did, is she just crossed her arms and stared at him, and he seemed to be getting upset. So she mumbled something and left the room. She went to the bathroom. She tried to calm down, but her anxiety just got worse and worse. Her brain was just running away with it, and she was overwhelmed. She would tell me later that she didn't really understand what was happening to her. She wondered if she was going crazy or if it was something she ate or maybe someone drugged her or something. And she, in the bathroom, tried to use pain to snap her out of it. She started pinching her skin. She remembered doing this when she was younger at school as a way of you know, pulling her out of these kinds of episodes, hoping that the physical pain would mask or snap her out of it somehow. That didn't really work. She went home. She couldn't sleep that night. She called in sick for a few days, and that's when she decided that she needed therapy. Okay, so that's the end of that case example of Nicole, someone that I think is a good example of what we might call covert or secret schizoid in that she has friends, and from the outside, there wouldn't be any a descript, you know, people wouldn't describe Nicole as being a loner. Um, they might describe her as being a little distant, perhaps, but some people might describe her as being very social and very capable in social situations. She liked to go to parties and get-togethers, and she would laugh, and she would socialize, and she would talk and be extroverted. She, one might even say she was extroverted. Uh, World of Warcraft. She was, you know, uh, not one of those players that kept to themselves. She would, you know, chat with new players and help them, and uh, would reach out to, you know, people in her family and people, friends of hers. And you know, she had good social skills. She would smile, but on the inside, she had a very robust system to make sure that her vulnerability and her real self was not being revealed. She also had a a limited understanding and expression of emotion in herself and other people. And she also had a bit of uh, paranoia about other people's uh, uh, intent when they want to know more information. Um, You remember when I was talking about her relationship with her husband, uh, he would seemingly sometimes feel very distant and hurt. 
because of this lack of closeness and emotional discussion and lack of dependency from her, you know, uh, uh, for a marriage or a long-term relationship, even a friendship, uh, typically for the two people to feel secure and bonded, each person needs to, at least to some extent, depend on the other person. You know, when my wife needs me for something, then I feel like uh, we're bonded. And, you know, because if she asks me for help and I provide that help and I ask her for help and um, she provides that help, it just is a continual reminder of how we are there for each other. And if my wife never asked me for help and never, uh, you know, cried on my shoulder and never seemed to come to me, you know, because another implication is that if, uh, you know, to Nicole's husband, for him, he might think like, well, if she's not coming to me, then she must be talking with someone else, maybe not a romantic partner, but everyone needs to cry on someone's shoulder sometimes. And if she's not crying on my shoulder, then she must be rejecting me. It's not because she doesn't want to cry on anyone's shoulder. She must be crying on someone else's shoulder. Whereas for Nicole, she didn't want to cry on anyone's shoulder. (laughs) She was very averse to that. She had built a whole system to avoid all that kind of thing. So this is a, a you know a pretty good long-winded example of someone who you know a composite case example of someone who might have schizoid personality disorder and who might be characterized as being a secret or, or covert. So I'm going to now go into the patron section and I'm going to talk about the debate as to whether or not it's a disorder or not. I'm going to talk about the association between schizoid and crime and murder. There's some research there. I'm going to go into detail on differentials and comorbidities because for a lot of you, you might be thinking, well, these people kind of sound like they're on the autism spectrum or they are neurodiverse in in some sort of way. Or it also sounds like avoidant uh, attachment or even avoidant personality disorder or maybe even a little bit of narcissistic personality disorder, or are are schizoid people on the psychotic spectrum? Because I learned that schizoid people are basically on their way to developing full schizophrenia. So there's a lot of different things to discuss to delineate uh, the category of schizoid. And there's also a fair amount of debate as to whether or not the category of schizoid should exist at all. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if DSM-6 doesn't actually have schizoid in it, and the the disorder is subsumed under some broader umbrella that includes both schizotypal and schizoid, which I wouldn't be a fan of, but um, but I would live with. So I'm going to get into all that kind of stuff, and if you want to hear all that, then become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. Otherwise, please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So 
You want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall, rock-climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble.